you. Yes. All right. So the reason why we brought Rachel in is because we are a church that cares about the same issues that she does. Uh, Issues like intellectual honesty with one's faith, inclusivity, uh, including those whom the church has historically marginalized, issues of ethics and justice. And so we are very proud to have Rachel here tonight and to be in partnership with her. The way this is going to work is uh, Rachel's going to talk for a little while, and then there's going to be Q&A. And so if you have a question, there's a microphone over here. Please come up during the Q&A portion. Do not come up sooner than that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then afterwards, we'll just kind of mingle and hang out and uh, have some drinks, perhaps. Um, there is coffee over here in the corner, over, over yonder where I'm pointing. That is Rose City Coffee, and so all the proceeds go to charity. And so if you want some coffee, you're supporting a good cause. Well, she probably doesn't need any introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway, especially for those of you who might not be too familiar with Rachel Held Evans. She hails from the metropolis of Dayton, Tennessee, uh, she, where she is a New York Times bestselling author, author of three books, uh, the latest of which is Searching for Sunday, uh, which subtitled Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. My guess is that you'll hear something about that tonight. But she's also a uh, regular columnist and a blogger with thousands, tens of thousands of followers. My guess is you are some of those followers. She's also a troublemaker and a heretic and a derelict like so many of us here. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Held Evans. Thank you. Oh my goodness, thank you. This is quite a warm welcome to Southern California. Uh, Y'all have treated me, I feel very at home. You're throwing food at me, you're being sweet and giving me gifts, you've adjusted the humidity to what I'm used to. So thanks for that. Um, Yeah, I'm just so grateful to be here among clearly kindred spirits, and I see familiar faces out there that just is really encouraging. Um, Now, I'm pregnant. Yay, baby. Um, So if I just begin to suddenly drift, it's because I'm creating a human life, and that's like a lot of, like, I'm doing two things at once here. I'm multitasking. So when I feel bad, Dan will be like, well, you know, the human brain is pretty much the most complex thing in the universe, and you're basically making that without even thinking about it right now. So if I just kind of veer, it's because I'm making a brain, and that's hard work. (laughs) Uh, But what I wanted to speak with you all about tonight um, is about uh, young adults in the church, about millennials in the church, about our generation uh, and... Uh, what we find compelling about church, what frustrates us about church. Um, And a lot of times people want me to come and speak about how do we get millennials back into the church. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that we already know the answer to that. We already know uh, what is compelling about the church. And it's not about making the church more relevant or hip It's not about bringing coffee shops to the lobby and incorporating fog machines into the worship. It's not about pastors who wear skinny jeans and Christian t-shirts, ironically. Uh, It's about communion. It's about baptism. It's about confession and anointing the sick. It's about death and resurrection. 
and all these strange and wonderful things that the church has been doing for 2,000 years, but that we tend to lose sight of when we get in our own way. So getting our generation interested and engaged in the church isn't about trying to make the church cool. It's about keeping the church weird. And so I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about why, in spite of everything, uh, I still want to be a part of this weird, dysfunctional family of the church. Uh, And so I'm going to be speaking and and reading a little bit from my book, Searching for Sunday. Uh, And this book describes my own journey, kind of in and out of church. Uh, And I I tell the story around seven sacraments and the imagery of seven sacraments. Baptism, confession, communion, holy orders, confirmation, anointing of the sick, and marriage. And I chose those seven, which are the seven recognized by like the Roman Catholic Church, uh, not to make a theological point or an ecclesiological point, uh, but more as a literary device. I just use the word ecclesiological, and that's a big word. Uh, I kid you not, one time I was, this is a sidetrack, but I was speaking at a Presbyterian seminary. I don't know why a Presbyterian seminary would want me to speak, uh, but it was like Q&A time, right? And somebody in the back of the room raises their hand, and they're like, would you say that your work represents the perichoesis of the Trinity? And I was like, yeah, totally. Whatever Walter Brueggemann says about that is what I think about that. Uh, so now I try to work big words like perichoesis and ecclesiology into my, my, my talks. Um, but I wasn't, with these seven sacraments, I wasn't trying to make a, a theological point about, oh, these are the only sacraments in any way. But it was more of just a way of telling my church story. Because I wasn't sure I could tell my church story, but I could tell the story of my baptism. I wasn't sure I could write about the future of the church in America, but I could write about what it means to share a meal that's more than a meal. I could write about communion. So it was kind of just a way of anchoring my story in things that we we can touch and taste and smell and feel, Uh, and these sacraments fit the bill. And really, in any thriving, healthy faith community that I've encountered, whether they recognize them and acknowledge them as sacraments or not, uh, we see these sacraments in some shape or form present among followers of Jesus, where they share a meal together that's more than a meal, where they baptize in some way, where they anoint the sick, maybe not with literal oil, but by coming together and surrounding someone who's suffering. Uh, So that just seemed like the best way to tell the story. So tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about baptism and communion, because those are the two we're probably most familiar with, uh, and how they have uh, impacted me and how I think about the church and how they might impact you. Uh, But first, a little bit about me, for those of you who aren't familiar with what I write. I grew up evangelical uh, in a very conservative part of the country, the buckle of the Bible Belt. In fact, the phrase Bible Belt was coined in my hometown of Dayton, Tennessee, uh, which is home of the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. If anyone is paying attention in their history class, they knew that already. And I I was raised in a very conservative Christian home, and I was a complete... Uh, religious nerd. Uh, I was on the homecoming court in high school representing the Bible club. (laughs) So (laughs) 
they like let the clubs have a representative, so there were like 50 people on the homecoming court, you know, and I was there representing the Bible club. Uh, at 16, this is super embarrassing, please do not Google this, uh, Christianity Today did a feature article on uh, abstinence-only education. And since my school was doing abstinence-only education in a public school, uh, I was quoted in the article, 16-year-old me saying, thanks to this class, I can hold my head up high and say, yeah, I'm a virgin. He's <laughs> like, excellent. Somebody's going to dig that up one day. And <laughs> uh, so clearly I was incredibly popular and had lots of friends. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but so I grew up in this world, but you know what? For all the things that I have since deconstructed about this evangelical upbringing, it wasn't so bad. It was actually pretty great at times. And I was loved very, very well by the people in my church. Not always in the right way, uh, but I was loved well, and I knew where I belonged. Uh, now, if any of you were a part of an evangelical church growing up, you know that youth group was very central to that experience and that a big part of youth group is going on trips together. Uh, so I want to read a little section from uh, Searching for Sunday about how my youth group would go to this camp every year. And this is a chapter entitled Chubby Bunny. One of these youth group trips uh, brought me back to Alabama each year for a weekend service project at Camp Maxwell in Haleyville. Camp Maxwell hosted underprivileged kids during the summer, but every spring invited privileged kids from youth groups around the southeast to pour concrete, dig up stumps, and rupture water mains for Jesus. All the girls bought new overalls just for the occasion. In the evening, we gathered in an open-air meeting house to worship, shiver, and listen to fire and brimstone sermons from men whose theology our youth pastor Brian gently corrected for us in the van ride home. It was at these gatherings that the Grace Bible Church Youth Group came to collectively appreciate our own exceptionalism, which we set out to prove each year by taking home the coveted Flush Valve Award. The Flush Valve Award looked exactly as it sounds, like a toilet flush valve mounted to a slab of pine wood, and was awarded to whichever youth group accumulated the most points over the weekend for victories in sports, games, Bible quizzes, and the all-important talent show. Most of these activities were easy wins for the Grace Bible Church contingency on account of our diversity. We boasted musicians, athletes, Bible nerds, and drama geeks in equal measure. One year, we earned a standing ovation at the talent show when we pulled off a miniature production of Stomp with members of the high school drumline hammering away at empty garbage cans. Our weakness lay in the games department. Now understand, games in the context of a Christian youth group means something entirely different than the same word in any other context. I suspect that in the late 90s alone, youth group games were responsible for millions of mono outbreaks, <laughs> thousands of broken bones, dozens of stomach pumps, and countless hours of therapy. For they typically involved placing insecure, hormonally charged teenagers in as physically awkward and borderline dangerous a situation as possible, preferably in the, prefer preferably in the company of food, in a misguided effort to break the ice. 
that invariably resulted in someone either throwing up or getting an erection. <laughs> there were trust falls and relay races and high-stakes, high-speed versions of Duck, Duck, Goose, musical chairs, dodgeball, and until it was banned because I think it actually killed some people, Red Rover. We played sardines, crammed 25 youths into the same dark hiding space for an hour, suck and blow, pass the credit card around the circle using only the suction from your mouths, and two buck chuck. Chug a half gallon of milk without throwing up and win two dollars. There was the one where you had to bob for snicker bars in a toilet bowl filled with lemonade. The one where you had to eat a banana with a pair of pantyhose over your head. And the one where you tossed cheese puffs at your partner's shaving cream-covered face. It was a perpetual circus of delight for us introverts, clearly. (laughs) I recently exchanged youth group war stories with some of my readers on Twitter, and their accounts were chilling. One person said, I've seen people drink milkshakes made from Happy Meals. Another, I once saw peanut butter licked from a dude's armpit. We took the smallest middle schoolers and duct taped them to the wall. The team whose person stayed on the wall the longest won. (laughs) Steal the bacon with petroleum jelly and watermelons. Three students with concussions and one youth leader with a nipple ring ripped out. (laughs) Another just wrote three words, strobe light volleyball. I like this one. I had to eat an onion like an apple once. I don't remember why. (laughs) So lucky for the Grace Bible Church youth group, our youth leader Brian struggled with moderate anxiety and therefore hated youth group games as much as we did. So our exposure to them came primarily through youth events like the one at Camp Maxwell. On the chilly night in question, the game that stood between the Grace Bible Church Youth Group and the Flush Valve Award was, of course, Chubby Bunny. Oh, man. Chubby Bunny is a game in which several volunteers cram as many marshmallows as they can into their mouths and attempt to say Chubby Bunny without throwing up or choking to death. The person who can do this with the most marshmallows in his or her mouth wins the game. Now, the, Grace, the youth group at Grace Bible Church hated Chubby Bunny. We were too cool for Chubby Bunny. We saw right through the insidious ruse that was Chubby Bunny. But we needed someone to play Chubby Bunny on our behalf if we were to sex- successfully win the Flush Valve Award and put all these other youth groups into their place. As the competition sent their delegates to the stage to the sound of cheers, we sat quietly in our five rows of wooden pews moving sawdust around with our shoes. We need a volunteer from Grace Bible Church, someone with far too many rubber bracelets on his arm shouted into the microphone. (laughs) Names were whispered. Eye contact was averted. Brian looked as scared as the rest of us. Then from the back came a steady, certain voice. I'll do it. We all turned. Mike was a back row boy, if ever there was one. You know the guys who always sat in the back row of youth group. (laughs) Tall and redheaded, he had a smart mouth and a daredevil spirit, intended to divide his time between detention and the ER. When Mike didn't like something, he let you know it. And Mike wasn't too fond of church or school or Camp Maxwell. 
However, his eyes always betrayed a soft twinkle, and he had such a wry, on-point wit that even we Bible nerds kind of liked him. I know I wasn't the only girl who enjoyed drawing a smile out of his stubborn lips, across that freckled face, that strong jaw, and those wide cheeks, cheeks made for Chubby Bunny. Without another word, Mike strode down the aisle and took his place between a girl in baggy overalls from Birmingham and a terrified junior high kid from Huntsville. They made him wear a trash bag like a bib. He was our Katniss Everdeen, (laughs) our volunteer for tribute. We won the Flesh Bob Award for the third straight year. So this is how a girl who went to school prepared to die for her faith ended up shrieking with delight as back row Mike shoved marshmallows into his face in pursuit of the flush valve award. I attribute any trace of socialism in my life to Brian Ward, my youth leader, and my days at the Grace Bible Church youth group. At a time when most of my peers were struggling to find an identity, I knew who I was. I was the church girl, the girl who always had a place in her youth group family, the girl on fire for God. I'm not sure I could ever calculate the value of that community, that sense of belonging and being loved. It never even occurred to me that such a fire could be washed out. Um, But that's exactly what happened. Uh, After graduating and moving on and going to college, I had started asking questions about a lot of what I had been taught at this wonderful church that loved me so well, but that also wouldn't allow women to preach or teach or lead. Uh, I started questioning what I'd been taught about heaven and hell, science and faith, uh, those strict gender roles that were imposed upon us, and especially about sexuality and how I knew that none of my LGBT friends would have been welcome in my church. And so, like millions of my fellow millennials, I left. I quit church. Uh, And it was great for a while. I mean, all the good news shows are on Sunday morning, like Meet the Press and whatnot. And you feel all informed, you know, you make your coffee all leisurely and have an opinion about what's being said on Meet the Press. It was pretty great. Uh, And then after that, uh, we got a little bit restless and my youth leader actually moved back to town and we attempted to plant a progressive Christian church uh, in Dayton, Tennessee. And that went poorly. So uh, all the relationships were great, and every, we all left on good terms, but it was just we ran out of money, and really basically no one was interested in coming. Uh, we were known as the gay church, but we actually didn't have any like gay people among us. It was just, people knew they wouldn't be turned away. So, And then so after like the enormous existential crisis that followed that whole situation, uh, we finally found our way to an Episcopal church in the neighboring town of Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, And it was the Episcopal church that introduced me to the sacraments in a really powerful way. And they came at such a great time because when my faith had become an abstraction, a set of propositions to believe, a side to take, the sacraments kind of got God out of my head and into my hands. Uh, it, it put God into things that I could taste and touch and smell and feel. And they reminded me that, like it or not, I can't be a Christian on my own. You can't very well do your own baptism. And communion's not really communion when you take it by yourself. Like it or not, this is a group activity. I need other people, I need the church. 
So with what remains of the evening, I want to speak a little bit about communion and a little bit about baptism. Um, So let's start with a communion story. Uh, So a few years ago, I was asked to speak uh, at this United Methodist Conference uh, for junior high and high school students uh, near Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, if any of you are at all familiar with my work, you know that like junior high and high school students aren't really my target audience. Uh, I dedicated an entire chapter of A Year of Biblical Womanhood to exploring what the Bible says about women and menstruation. So, like, what am I going to say to junior high boys? A little little weird. And also, I had all of the memories from my old youth group days (laughs) lingering. And I'm an introvert. And if you're an introvert, you know that, like, youth events are your greatest nightmare, right? Like, there, oh, there's, like, T-shirt cannons and, like, music, and somebody's going to get up on stage and be like, everybody stand up, hug the person next to you, and you're just like, no, don't make me do it. Give them a big kiss in Jesus Christ, and you're just like, no. Uh, and invariably, when I'm speaking at these events, which is rarely, the person introducing me will jump up on stage and they'll be like, all right, everybody, Rachel Held Evans is here to blow your mind. And I like come out on stage, I've got my podium and I'm like, let's talk about the Greco-Roman household codes in the New Testament and how they apply to our lives. So like, I don't really blow any minds. Uh, So I knew this was going to be really out of my comfort zone to do this. So I called the Methodist and I was like, are you sure this is a good fit? For you guys and they're like we're sure we want you to come I was like can you assure me that there won't be any fog machines involved I'm like well I'm afraid that we've already ordered them <laughs> so, so I prepared for this for weeks and weeks and weeks I slaved over the material I called Brian Ward my youth leader to ask him like for tips uh, I rewrote everything prayed about it I had a low moment when I got on the internet to like see what the kids are into these days And that was when Gangnam Style was really big. And I was like, I don't know whether I'm supposed to, like, enjoy this for real or ironically. Like, (laughs) I need help. I need, like, a translator. Uh, But so the day finally arrived, and the event was at this beautiful camp out in in Lynchburg. And there were 600 uh, youth and and, uh, parents and youth leaders there. And before each session every night, I just prayed to myself, God, just help me to do right by these kids. Just help me to do right by these kids. Just help me to do right by these kids. I just didn't want to screw anybody up. Uh, And I I think I didn't completely blow it. I mean, I didn't talk about my period, and I came in under time, so that's a win. Uh, But after the last session, when all I wanted to do was curl up in the fetal position and hide away for a while, I was asked to help the leaders uh, serve communion to everyone who is there. And I was charged with handing out the bread. And I have been, I've received communion many, many, many times, but this was my first time ever serving communion. And it is quite an experience from that side of the table. Uh, as the music played and hundreds and hundreds of these junior high and high school students and their parents and their youth leaders came by, they, they put their hands out together, cupped Uh, Isn't that a vulnerable position to take? Your hands cupped together, expecting to receive. And I put this little piece of bread in their hands, and this is the Methodist way of doing it. I said, this is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you.
And I said it to the ones who shuffled by and avoided my gaze. I said it to the ones who had tears streaming down their faces. I said it to the ones who giggled in line with their friends and to the ones who came all alone. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. I said it to the ones in designer jeans, the ones who for some reason were still wearing their pajamas, the ones I could tell were athletes, the ones I could tell were the class clowns, the ones I could tell probably got picked on in school. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. And I looked into each one of their faces, and I saw shyness in some, I saw anxiety, I saw boredom, I saw hope. I saw broken families, conflicts with friends, doubts about God, insecurities about that Van Ride home. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. This is Christ's body, broken for you. And after I said it about 600 times, I finally got it. I finally believed it. Oh, this is enough. This body and this blood is enough. It's not about me doing right by these kids. It's not about me blowing their minds. It's about me getting out of the way and letting Jesus do his thing, letting Jesus be present among them. It's not about me doing right by them. It's about Christ having already done right by them on the cross and by his presence among them. This isn't a table for the worthy. It's a table for the hungry. And we were all hungry. The table equalized us in that way. It's not about being up to the task. It's about getting out of the way. Because Jesus alone is enough. So then after communion, we had a dance party. Because that's how the Methodists roll. It was good. <laughs> My introverted self died at the end. But it was, it was a good time. Uh, but we do this sometimes, don't we? We make Christianity so much more complicated than it needs to be, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed, especially when we're feeling out of place or discouraged or in over our head. And this is certainly true when it comes to talking about young adults in the church or millennials and the church. Uh, everybody wants me to speak about this, this these days. Uh, and so I usually begin by telling a little bit of my own story coming in and out of church, uh, and then I step on a few toes by uh, explaining and talking about some of the surveys that are taken about why millennials and why young people leave the church. And I get a lot of this data from uh, Pew Forum, places like that. Uh, David Kinneman has a great book on this with the Barna Group and several other places. And so I tell these religious, usually it's like um, church leaders who bring me in to talk about this. And I tell them, well, millennials are tired of the culture wars. We're tired of Christianity getting all entangled with party politics and power. I tell them we don't want to have to choose between science and religion or between our intellectual integrity and our faith. That we want the church to be a safe place to doubt, to wrestle with tough questions without fear of condemnation. I tell them we want our gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender friends to be totally welcome in the church and not treated as second-class citizens. 
that we care about social justice and gender equality and creation care, and we want the church to care about these things too. But we recognize that both Jesus without social justice and social justice without Jesus basically renders the church unnecessary. Now, invariably, after I've gone through this whole litany of things, someone in the back of the room raises his hand and says, so what you're saying is we need to bring in a cooler band. (laughs) And I proceed to bang my head against the podium. Because time and time again, the assumption among church leaders and among many Christians is that the key to drawing, getting young people back into the church is to do a few style updates. You know, a better band, iPad giveaways at Easter. Uh, And, you know, these aren't always bad ideas. Some places could, you know, for the love, update your website. But, (laughs) but here's the thing. We millennials have been advertised to our entire lives. Everyone is trying to sell us something. Everyone's trying to convince us that their idea or their product is the next big thing. Everyone's trying to entertain us. And because of this, we have very finely tuned BS meters. And we can sense when somebody's just trying to sell us something. And church is the last place we want to go to be entertained. It's the last place we want to go to just be sold another product. We can sniff that out when it's there. Like, we're not looking for lattes. (laughs) We're looking for Jesus. Like, every generation before ours and every generation after we're looking for Jesus. We're not looking for a hipper Christianity. We're looking for a truer Christianity, a more authentic Christianity. But here's where the good news comes in. The church has been introducing people to Jesus for 2,000 years. We know how to do this. It's not rocket science. We know where we meet Jesus. We meet Jesus in the Word. We meet Jesus in communion. We meet Jesus in suffering in confession and repentance and reconciliation. We meet him where two or three are gathered in his name. We meet him in the least of these, the poor, the sick, the marginalized, and the left out. We meet God in all these ordinary, unglamorous, everyday things that God uses to reach out to us in bread, in wine, water, words, poetry, poverty, tears, and touch. The God of the universe is crammed into these ordinary, everyday things, and yet we don't really believe that they're enough. We don't really believe that they're sufficient. And so we panic. We make it all about ourselves. We try way too hard to be cool. We get way more focused on selling Jesus over following Jesus. And then we start building all of these unnecessary obstructions out of our pet theologies, out of our sacred cows, out of our ideologies, our prejudice, the way we've always done it, and our screwed up notions of who's in and who's out. And we end up kind of just getting in our own way. So why do we do this? Why do I do this? Well, I think it's maybe because we're a little scared. You know, we're scared that if we get out of the way, then God might use people and methods that we don't really approve of, which God is a super annoying habit of doing. We're scared that if we get out of the way, things might get a little out of our control. We're scared that if we get out of the way, this grace thing might get a little out of hand. But here's the thing. 
Uh, grace got out of hand the moment the God of the universe hung on a Roman cross, looked out at the people who put him there, and said, Father, forgive them. Uh, grace has been out of hand for 2,000 years. We best get used to it. Roll with the punches. So we started with a story about communion, uh, and I want to kind of conclude here with a couple of stories about baptism. Uh, everybody knows John the Baptist, right? You can always pick that dude out, like, in a lineup of saints, because he's the scary one. Like, he's got, he's got, like, the crazy beard. He looks like a Duck Dynasty guy, you know? And he's, like, sometimes they'll put, like, locusts in his beard for effect, or just his head on a platter, you know? Which, that was in the lectionary this week. Too soon, maybe. Uh, and, but the thing is, probably not a lot of people expected John the Baptist to turn out like this. Uh, John was the son of a, a priest, a temple priest named Zechariah. And at the time, John would have observed his father um, uh, performing all of these rituals in the temples. And, and one of those was that people would come to receive these ritual cleansings, these baptisms, in these special baths that were prepared for them ahead of festivals and before a sacrifice. Um, but when it came John's turn, uh, John didn't baptize people in the temple. He went out to the wilderness and started baptizing people in rivers. And he did this to embody the prophecy of Isaiah, who declared that every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Prepare the way of the Lord, John the Baptist told the people. Make his paths straight. The people don't have to go to God. God is coming to the people. Make a straight path. Get out of the way. And I wonder if these words were echoing through Philip's mind when he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, this is another story from the New Testament. Uh, after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, Philip is an evangelist, and he's sent out by the Holy Spirit to this wilderness road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And there Philip encounters a royal Ethiopian eunuch who's riding, riding in this chariot and reading Hebrew scripture as he goes, which I can't read while I'm flying. I don't know how one would read a scroll in a chariot, but he was doing it. Uh, but you have to understand, as a, as a eunuch, this man would have been prohibited from even entering temple grounds at the time, much less participating in a temple ritual. Uh, the law clearly forbade it. He was a sexual and ethnic minority, and as such, he would have been totally excluded from the religious life in Jerusalem. But Philip approaches this chariot and asks the eunuch, do you know what you're reading about? Do you understand this passage? And it was a passage about suffering. So they talked about it together, and Philip tells the eunuch about Jesus and says, you know, when God became flesh and lived among us, God suffered too. Overcome with joy, the eunuch looks out at the desert landscape around them and says, look, there's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And perhaps for a moment, Philip thought to himself, well, your anatomy for one thing, your ethnicity, your lack of knowledge, your status as an outsider. But I suspect that instead, Philip remembered the words of John. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Get out of the way, Philip. God is on the move. Because without another word, Philip baptizes him in the first body of water that they can find. It might have been a river. It might have been a puddle. 
he got out of the way. He remembered that what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in, starting with you and me, for sure. (laughs) But we religious types aren't very good at getting out of the way. We're much better at building walls and retreating into our temples. We're better at making mountains out of our ideologies and our rules and our theologies. But there's this voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, tear down the mountains and smooth out a path. Get out of the way and God will move. And I sometimes wonder if this is what Jesus meant when he said that with enough faith we can move mountains because sometimes the hardest mountains to move are those of our own making. Um, So I want to finish with a reading from the chapter on baptism, uh, because I've been thinking a lot about baptism lately. I've got a conference coming up this next week that Nadia Bowles-Weber and I are planning together, uh, which has been a riot, planning an event with her. Oh my gosh, craziness. We're such different personalities. She's like, they don't like it, screw it. And I'm like, we have to make everyone happy. But we've become like fast friends through it all. Um, but the event is called Why Christian? And we've invited uh, quite a few people to, to speak on that, answer that question, uh, all women that we really admire and who we think who answer that question for us. Um, and as I've been preparing my talk, um, I've been kind of wrestling with that question. Why Christian? At my event today, somebody said, well, you know, I'm getting really uncomfortable with the label Christian. Why do you keep it? Um, And I mean, I went through that whole stage where it was like, you know, my Facebook status said, or my Facebook thing profile said Christian, and then it said follower of Jesus, and then I changed it to it's complicated. Uh, uh, But I'm kind of circling back around to just owning the fact that I am a Christian, that I am part of this screwed up dysfunctional family of the church, uh, and that there's really no getting around it. And as I'm thinking about how am I going to answer that question next week in front of a thousand people, um, I've been thinking a lot about why are we going to baptize our kid in spite of everything? In spite of this week when, when I turned on my TV, there were people in a crowd waving white crosses and cheering on discrimination against LGBT people in the name of Christ. On a week like this, how do I answer that question, why Christian? How, how am I going to justify baptizing my child into this church? Uh, and as I've been thinking about that, I've, I've been thinking a lot about baptism. So I want to read this chapter. Um, it's entitled, Naked on Easter. In the early 1920s, archaeologists exploring the desert ruins of Dura Europis, a Roman border city in modern-day Syria, uncovered a series of crude frescoes on the walls of a Roman home. The frescoes surrounded a bathing pool and depicted several distinct scenes. A shepherd carrying a lamb on his shoulders, a woman at a well, two figures walking across the sea as their comrades watched from a ship, three women approaching a tomb. The archaeologists had discovered the baptistry of what remains the oldest known church building in the world. Nearly 2,000 years earlier, on Easter morning, just before the sun rose, flickering lamplight would have illuminated the drawings as new converts to Christianity kneeled, stark naked, in the water of the baptistry. One by one, the men separated from the women, each publicly affirmed the tenets of the faith, and renounced Satan and his demons before being submerged three times in cold water. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Dost thou renounce Satan and all his angels and all his works and all his services and all his pride? Orthodox priests ask adult converts to this day. I do, says the convert. Dost thou unite thyself to Christ? I do. After baptism, converts were given white robes to signify their new life in Christ and anointed with oil, marking them as members of the royal priesthood. They then joined their fellow believers to celebrate the Eucharistic meal for the first time. The process was repeated every year after several days of fasting and at the culmination of the solemn Easter vigil. Now these days, most churches don't begin their Resurrection Sunday service with a bunch of wet, naked people renouncing Satan and his demons at 6 o'clock in the morning. Such an approach would draw far fewer visitors than elaborate passion plays or Easter egg hunts promising cash prizes. And yet, historically, the Christian life began with the public acknowledgement of two uncomfortable realities, evil and death. And in baptism, the Christian makes the audacious claim that neither one gets the final word. Now, I'm as uncomfortable as the next Honda-driving, NPR-listening, New York Times-reading progressive with the notion of exercising demons. When I get to those stories in the New Testament, I'm inclined to take the sophisticated route and assume that these are just metaphorical stories or that those healings were about some other kind of illness. But lately, I've been wondering if this leaves something important out, something true about the shape and nature of evil, which, as Alexander Schmemann puts it, is not merely an absence of good, but the presence of a dark and irrational power. Indeed, our sins, hate, fear, greed, jealousy, lust, materialism, pride, can at times take such distinct forms in our lives we recognize them in the faces of the gargoyles and grotesques that guard our cathedral doors. And these sins join in a chorus, you might even say a legion, of voices locked in an ongoing battle with God to lay claim over our identity to convince us we belong to them, that they have the right to name us. Where God calls the baptized beloved, demons call her addict, slut, sinner, failure, fat, worthless, faker, screw-up. Where God calls her child, the demons beckon with rich, powerful, pretty, important, religious, esteemed, accomplished, right. It is no coincidence that when Satan tempted Jesus after his baptism, he began his entreaties with, if you are the Son of God. We all long for someone to tell us who we are. The great struggle of the Christian life is to take God's name for us, to believe we are beloved, and to believe that that is enough. Whether they come from within us or outside of us, whether they represent distinct personalities or the sins and systems that compete for our allegiance, Demons are as real as the competing identities that seek to possess us. But rather than casting them out of our churches, we tend to invite them in, where they tell us we'll be children of God when, when we beat the addiction, when we sign the doctrinal statement, when we help with the children's ministry, when we get our act together, when we tithe, when we play by the rules, when we believe without doubt, when we are married, when we are straight, when we are religious, when we are good. But the first act of the Christian life, says Shmemon, is a renunciation, a challenge. In baptism, the Christian stands naked and unashamed before all these demons, 
all these impulses and temptations, sins and failures, empty sales pitches and screwy labels, and says, I am a beloved child of God, and I renounce anyone or anything that tells me otherwise. In some Orthodox traditions, the convert literally spits in the face of evil before going under the water. It's a brave and defiant thing to do, and we Christians ought to do it more often, if not in our baptisms, then in our remembrance of them. In addition to proclaiming God's power over principalities, the oldest baptism rites declared God's power over death. Many of the first baptismal fonts were shaped as coffins, and baptisms took place just before sunrise on Easter morning to recall Christ's triumph over the grave. The Christian's descent into the water represents a surrender, a death to the old way of living. Emergence represents a resurrection, a starting over again. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The Apostle Paul wrote the Romans. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Cyril of Jerusalem told the newly baptized that by this action you died and you were born. And for you the saving water was at once a grave and the womb of a mother. Luther describes baptism as the drowning of the old sinful self, which he notes is a mighty good swimmer. And Argentinian preacher Juan Carlos Ortiz has been known to use the startling baptismal formula, I kill you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and make you born into the kingdom of God. I dare you to do that next baptism. (laughs) Death and resurrection. It's the impossibility around which every other impossibility of the Christian faith orbits. Baptism declares that God is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. So if you want in on God's business, you better prepare to follow God to all the rock-bottom, scorched earth, dead-on-arrival corners of this world, including those of your own heart. Because that's where God works. That's where God gardens. Baptism reminds us there's no ladder to holiness to climb, no self-improvement plan to follow. It's just death and resurrection over and over again, day after day, as God reaches down into our deepest graves and with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, rests us from our pride, our apathy, our fear, our prejudice, our anger, and our despair. Most days, I don't know which is harder for me to believe, that God reanimated the brain functions of a man three days dead, or that God can bring back to life all the beautiful things that we have killed. Both seem pretty unlikely to me. Everyone's got an opinion these days about why people are leaving the church. Some wish to solve the problem by making Christianity a little more palatable. You know, cut out all this weird mystical stuff about sin, demons, and death and resurrection, and replace it with self-help books or politics or fancy theological systems. But sometimes I think what the church needs most is to recover some of its weird. There's no sense in sending her through the makeover montage of the chick flick when she'll always be the strange, awkward girl who only gets invited to prom on a dare. In the ritual of baptism, our ancestors acted out the bizarre truth of the Christian identity. We are people who stand totally exposed before evil and death and declare them powerless against love. There's nothing normal about that. And so when I think about why we're going to baptize this little guy, I think about, I want him to know that 
the most important identity he will ever have over and beyond any other is a beloved child of God. And that love can defeat even death, even evil. Um, and that's something that no place in my experience but the church can really give me. Uh, and this is why even as somebody who likes to sleep in on Sunday mornings and sleeps in on a lot of Sunday mornings, uh, I still want to be part of the church and I still want to be connected to the church. Because, I mean, where else can you go once a year and have somebody smush ashes on your forehead and tell you that you're going to die one day? <laughs> I mean, that is a uniquely Christian service that's provided right there. Uh, and you know what? I like it. I need that in my life. I need somebody who will remind me that I'm going to die. Uh, and I'm thankful for the church for that. I'm thankful for it precisely because it's weird. Not because it's hip, not because it's cool or relevant. I mean, it's always relevant. That's the thing. We don't have to work hard at making it so. Uh, the acknowledgement that you're a beloved child of God, that you're going to die, but that God can even beat death, that is always relevant, no matter how we dress it up. Uh, and so my final word of admonition to you all uh, as we conclude is to, uh, let's talk about death for a little bit. <laughs> Don't be afraid of death. Um, there's a lot of worrying and hand-wringing these days over like the church in North America is dying uh, or the church is dying, which really it's, it depends on what part of the world you're looking at. It's a very sort of, you know, America white centric way of looking at things, but I understandably the numbers are in decline here in the U.S., and so people are worried that the church is dying. Um, and sure, it's losing some of its power and influence and losing some of its money, uh, but I want to say to you all today is like death is something that empires worry about. It's not something that resurrection people worry about, and maybe a little death and resurrection is exactly what the church needs right now. Maybe all of this change that we're seeing in the church means that our empire-building days are over, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it, God is just doing what God does by making something new. Chesterton put it this way. He said, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it has a God who knows the way out of the grave. So I don't know what this death and resurrection might look like, but I hope that it looks like altars transforming into tables and gates transforming into open doors and cure-alls transforming into healing oils. I hope it looks like a kingdom that belongs not to the rich, but to the poor, not to the triumphant, but to the meek, not to the culture warriors, but to the peacemakers. If Christianity has to die, let it die to the old ways of dominance and control and let it be resurrected to the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And a church that expressed this really beautifully uh, is, uh, I heard this story from a reader of mine. I was soliciting church stories from people and she sent this story in and it really just blew me away. Uh, her name is Stacy and her partner's name is Tams, short for Tammy. And the two of them, they both grew up uh, different parts of the world, but uh, in evangelical churches. And like so many of our LGBT brothers and sisters, their experience in those churches was not great. Uh, as soon as they came out or as soon as they uh, you met somebody special, they were ostracized and marginalized and treated differently. 
Um, and so they, they both had that experience, but as they got together and started a family and wanted to, to kind of start over again, they were making a big move out to Canada, they decided they, want to try to, they wanted to try to do church again. And they wanted to try to do an evangelical church, because that's sort of what they grew up with. They loved raising their hands in worship and doing the whole spirit thing, and they really wanted that experience again. So they called around, they're in Canada, they called around to uh, lots of local evangelical churches and said, hey, just be upfront with us. We'd like to come to your church. Uh, we're a lesbian couple. Will we be welcome? And every time the response was pretty predictable. You would be totally welcome here, but, <laughs> but you can't help with the children's ministry, but we can't have, let you take any leadership positions, but you can't pursue membership. And so they were feeling discouraged, um, calling around, feeling a sense of rejection. But finally they found a, a church that they called, and they talked to the pastor himself. It's a little church plant that's part of a relatively conservative denomination in Canada. Uh, they were just starting out kind of a fledgling group, and he said, you are welcome, no questions asked, no stipulations, just come. We want you to be a part of things. And so they joined the church. They got super involved. Uh, everybody loved them. They loved everybody. They did children's ministry. They did you know, choir and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and things were going really, really well. And so at some point they were like, well, we really need to become members of this church. We're so involved. And so they approached the pastor about it, and he said, we'd love for you all to be members, but you should know that the denomination frowns on that and, in fact, doesn't allow uh, same-sex couples to become members of a church. Uh, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so they became members. Uh, and things went well until the denomination caught wind of it. And they threatened that if they didn't revoke this membership, that this church would lose all of its funding from the denomination, which if you're a church plant, you know that's the death nail. Uh, and so Stacy and Tams kind of prepared themselves for the worst. They'd been through this before. They'd been kicked out of churches before. Uh, they knew how this went, and they expected it to happen again. But the pastor looked at them, and, and the whole congregation gathered and uh, stood around them and prayed with them and said, we are not letting you go. Like, you are members of our church, uh, and nothing can change that. And sure enough, the denomination pulled all of the funding. And for this little church plant, they just couldn't survive without any money. They had one last service before the pastor had to move out of town to get another job. Uh, they stayed in community with one another, but it wasn't an official church anymore after that service. And I suppose, and this is how Stacy looks at it, and it's how I look at it, we could see that as a death. We could see that as a sad story. Um, but I kind of see it as a hopeful one. Because here was a church that would rather die than turn people away. And if that's what the future of the church looks like, complete with death and resurrection, then count me in. I want to be a part of that. Uh, and I think we can be hopeful that that's in our future. And I hope that that's what the resurrection of our church looks like. Uh, I can get on board with that. Uh, so that's all I had to share with you all tonight, and I think we have time for some Q&A. Is that right? Step on up tonight.
Okay, if you got a question, come on down. I know it's a little scary, but you can do it. Um, Mike's all yours. Somebody today asked me about atonement theology. Please just don't do that. I don't. <laughs> what is the nature? I don't know. I was like, whatever Walter Brueggemann says about that, that's, that's like my go-to answer. Like, well, I really like what Brueggemann's written on that. And then I like act like, you must know what that is. And that's how we get through Q&A. I'll break the hey, big Elizabeth. scary This is egg. Elizabeth Esther. Oh. You all might read her blog. <laughs> and her book, Girl at oh the End of gosh. the World, is amazing. You, I could not put it down. I already, I, Elizabeth and I have been to Bolivia together, so I knew like her whole story. And I still, I, like, I knew how her book was going to end, and I still was like, I have to, I read until like two in the morning. So, Girl at the End of the World, wow. ElizabethEsther.com. I paid not her everybody's going to say that for me. <laughs> You're so generous. Thank you, Rachel. Um, so my question is for those of us who um, find ourselves still in very traditional denominations like myself, um, what sort of advice do you have for those of us who want to see the inclusion um, and yet are sometimes feel like we're fighting an impossible battle? I'm in the Catholic Church, so things are difficult. Things sometimes. take a little while like, to yeah, change this, in that church. Yeah, just a little. So, what are, yeah, I'm just curious if you have some suggestions or advice for those of us who are still in traditional. Yeah, it's hard. And I want to say that, like, I'm, I want people to stay when they feel called to stay. Uh, you know, for some of us, we have to leave a certain tradition and go to another one. But others of us can work within them to try and make change happen. Um, but I think it's like it does happen slowly, and it happens at the relational level. And if you kind of go in thinking, I'm here to fix it, um, you know, it'll be hard to build those relationships. So, you know, I mean, things that I've learned over time, uh, being in a, still a very conservative community, and most of my very dearest friends and family are very, very conservative uh, and evangelical, um, is to not push too hard. I think when I first started having questions and doubts about my faith, when I first started seeing things differently, I was so lonely in that journey, so desperate for companionship, I came on a little strong, like, like a baby shower is not the time to bring up like the Holocaust and the problem of evil. So, but that's where my brain would go because that's what I was thinking about. And so sometimes I rocked the boat for the sake of rocking it without being um, careful. And so some of the relationships that I, that were broken were broken and you know, I had some blame to share for that. Uh, so I don't know, you know, it's, it's tough, but taking it one relationship at a time and like avoiding that trap of cynicism on the one hand or sentimentality on the other. You know, some of us tend to get so cynical about our tradition that like we cannot see any of the good. Others of us become so sort of enamored with it that we can't see any of the bad. And when I was writing Searching for Sunday that my goal was just to tell the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly. Like some people want me to only diss on the church and only diss on evangelicalism, but there's a lot that I genuinely deeply love about my tradition. And I know that's true for you. And I know that what the Catholic Church has offered you has been so nourishing after your background and crazy conservative fundamentalism, like way past what I was dealing with, um, that you can see good in it that some of us maybe can't. I really feel like that the people who are best prepared to advocate for change in a tradition are the people who are part of that tradition. 
Uh, and so, it, I mean, it just makes me so happy that, that you're doing that. But I don't know. And if anybody has any other ideas on that, I'm still learning how to navigate those waters. Nice, subtle walk away, Elizabeth. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Uh, Hi. Thank you for your words. My name is Nathan. Um, so one of the things, I'm a new father of a 10-month-old. One of the things my wife and I have been thinking about a lot is just um, in our tradition, um, you know, the children's ministry tends to be fairly conservative in my mind. Mm. Um, you know, when they're taught, you know, Bible stories in a certain way, it's very, you know, literal and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm sure you and Dan have talked about this a lot about... Um, how you want to raise up your child yeah. to be, um, I don't know, we, we just, we don't want to screw up our daughter. Right. And, <laughs> and so true. That, that, so that terrifies me. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> what would you have to say to um, the idea of children's ministry redefined in a more, I don't know if progressive is the right word, but a more progressive light, I guess. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. we've been having so many of these conversations yeah. in our house. Like, and it's gone from hypothetical to real now, and oh, it's yeah. like freaking us out. <laughs> and yeah, no, I know. I mean, okay, kids' choirs all depends on your state of mind, whether they are cute or terrifying, right? <laughs> so like a bunch of kids singing like nothing about, you know, being washed in the blood of Jesus. Like, cute, also a little creepy, you know? Like... It's one of those times where I'm like, oh my gosh, we're in a cult. That's it. Um, so yeah, we've been thinking a lot about this. You know, when I think about it, though, I think about how my parents raised me in a conservative evangelical church where, you know, I was hearing about, you know, heaven and hell and right. the Bible stories were very, you know, taught very sort of literally to me, which I think is fine for children, actually. Um, a series I recommend is called Telling God's Story. And anybody, y'all know Pete Enns, Peter Enns, like the, yeah, the Bible guy? I love him. Sometimes I just email him random questions like, hey, what's up with, like, the tree of life? What's your interpretation? And he writes me right back. Um, I can't guarantee you will do that for everybody, but it's, it's really nice to have him on hand. But he's written, he was part of the author of this series, and it's like, it, it, it kind of encourages people to start with the parables. And um, it's a really smart approach to teaching children the Bible. It's called Telling God's Story. And they've got like a, a book for parents and teachers. And then they've got the books for the kids too. And, they're, and he's working with Rachel Stone, who I love on this. And they're doing like a whole series. So there's going to be more unrolled on that. And I hope that looks really promising to me. But when I'm thinking about my own background, um, you know, I was getting some difficult messages as a child, and you know what? I don't think they screwed me up too much. <laughs> uh, and I think that's because my parents took a posture of openness and honesty with me, so I always felt safe asking them questions and challenging things a little bit. Uh, one of the things I most appreciate about my father, he went to Dallas Seminary. Uh, so I, I mean, I really believe that my dad knew the answer to every question there ever could be about God. Like, he was the expert. Um, but I'll never forget, I was struggling once because I had really severe eczema when I was a child and couldn't sleep at night and was bleed, you know, I had blood all over the sheets. And I was just having a rough time, and I was like, why would God let this happen to me? God's supposed to be good. Why is he letting me suffer like this? And I'll never forget, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Rachel, I don't know. I don't know, but I know that God loves you. 
And just parents who are willing to say, I don't know, or what do you think? They would ask me that a lot. What do you think? And I knew that they would love me unconditionally no matter where my path took me. And I have taken, my path has taken some crazy places. And my dad has an important position at a conservative Christian college. And not once has he shown any embarrassment or frustration with me, even though I know what I do has hurt his reputation. When you have that kind of safety net, the rest of it, it's important, but it's not as important. Like, so a Sunday school teacher can say something a little screwy, uh, or you can make mistakes. But when your kid knows that you love them unconditionally, uh, that you don't have all of the answers, that you're struggling, you wrestle with this stuff too, I think it creates an environment where you can talk openly and honestly with one another. I've never doubted that their love for me is more important to them than where I stand politically or where I stand the- theologically. Not once in my life have I doubted that. And if you can create that for your kid, they'll, I, I think, I hope, they'll be fine. Uh, yeah. Good. Thank you. Hello. Okay, so um, you invoked orthodoxy earlier. You made a transition from evangelicalism to, uh, you know, the high church tradition of Episcopalianism. So the weirdest thing about Christianity, I'm going to ask, is kind of what have been your thoughts on some of the older traditions regarding consubstantiation or transubstantiation? Oh, oh transubstantiation, I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just curious. I'm going to do it my dad. I mean, I, ought, I mean that, see, that sort of thing, I mean... I guess it's sort of like one thing I like about the the Episcopal Church is together we proclaim the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And so I think of like Christ's presence in the Eucharist or in communion, people understand that in very, very different ways. And I'm kind of with Flannery O'Connor where she says like, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. It's more than just a symbol to me, but what that means, you know, I wouldn't be as far over as maybe some of my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters on how I think about what happens in communion, but I do think the presence of Jesus Christ is real in that moment, uh, and that it's not just pointing to Christ. In that moment, it is Christ in some way. Uh, I don't really understand what that means, and and that's one of the reasons why I appreciate that word mystery uh, stuck into the Episcopal liturgy, because like half the time... I'm saying the creeds, and I'm not believing a word of it. <laughs> so uh, other times, I'm all on board. Uh, and so I've kind of, one thing I like about the high church tradition is that when I can't say the creed, the lady next to me is saying it, and the guy next to me is saying it, and I kind of think that they're saying it on my behalf, and I'm grateful for that. So that's a long way to say, I don't know what happens in communion, but I think it's important. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. I'm, I'm Rachel. Hi, hey, Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> um, so one of the things that you didn't mention about um, millennials leaving the church was um, the issue of singleness and the way that mm-hmm. I would say anyway that a lot of evangelical churches have sort of made an idol of the nuclear family. Right. Um, and so um, I know as, as a person in my late 20s who's single, might or might not get married, um, it's, it's been really hard. Like I often don't feel very welcome and not just not mm-hmm. because people are mean, but just like there's nothing for you to do there. There's no group or anything. Um, And I've become kind of frustrated because I really think, I I guess I've realized it's, it's really a problem in the larger culture. Like I think, Mm. um, I think 
we, I think it's a part of American culture, you know, we mm -hmm. kind of make uh, the nuclear family the most important thing. It's kind of like, goes without saying that your family comes before other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I almost think we don't know how to live in community um, outside of our family or like yeah. put that in front of our family, um, make the community, community the, the more important thing. Um, and so I'm kind of at a loss and I don't know if you have any ideas, but I wanted to, to know if you had thought about that and if you yeah. have any suggestions for like how to, how to make some changes yeah. with that. Yeah, it's so funny because churches are like, where did all the young people go? And it's like, okay, here's how your ministries are set up. You have children's ministries, then you have youth, you have junior high ministry, yeah. then you have youth ministry, then you have college ministry, yeah. and then you have married yeah. ministry. And, it's, and then sometimes they have singles in there, but yeah. then that can get a little weird because, you know, depending on how they're running things, running that show. Um, but, but it's sort of like, oh, and you're wondering where all of the young people are going. Well, most young people are, are not getting married until their early 30s, late yeah. 20s. Like, that's normal. Yeah. And we've so structured churches, like, tend to build um, their programs around categories uh, where we, I mean, even... Even, like, gender categories. Like, the men always get the breakfast. Like, what is that about? Oh, we've got a men's breakfast. Like, girls like bacon, too, you know? <laughs> like, we always get the teas, right? Well, the men have their men's breakfast, and they're going to talk about theology, and the women are going to have their tea, and their Bibles have flowers on them. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> But yeah, we build all of these programs around categories, and then we wonder why we have these gaps happening because people aren't jumping into that married category yeah. or married with children category, really. Um, and so, like, this is something that I a value that I actually see in a lot of mainline churches where everybody kind of worships together and where things are done together. I mean, I realize that might not always be as appealing to people, but for me, it's really nice that the people I spend time with at church span quite a few generations. And so I think if churches made maybe a bit more of an effort to move away from the category way of doing things and more into the, like, let's actually get everybody talking together thing, I think that'd be great. The problem I see, a lot of mainline churches don't do small groups, uh, and small groups are like the lifeblood of a, of a big evangelical church, and I do think they're a good idea, um, but maybe a crazy idea would be to mix those up with gener different generations and people at different stages of life so that it's not a small group full of young families or a small group full of singles, but, like, mix, I mean, that's just... I'm not a pastor. I don't know if that would work, but that's kind of my idea, is bring the, the mainline emphasis on intergenerational worship together with the evangelical mm -hmm. emphasis on small groups. Yeah. I mean, I've basically solved the problem. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. That's kind of like, I would like to see more of yeah, that happen. Yeah. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Congratulations on your pregnancy, oh, by the thank way. You. I know that was your next project, so. <laughs> How's the brain coming? How's the brain coming? <laughs> I didn't actually have a question. I just want to express my appreciation for your putting yourself out there. Um, I grew up in, uh, in northern Florida, near Alabama, in an evangelical church, um, and I'm bisexual. And... It's, um, and I came out to my family, and it's been difficult. So, um, and I'm thinking about going to the Catholic Church, which is anathema in my 
hometown and with my family. So, um, so, but I. Oh, I've, yeah, I've upset just about everyone. Yeah, possible. Um, but I wanted, I, that's what all I wanted was to just express and how much I'm looking forward to not necessarily meeting you again in person, but seeing your journey and, and how encouraging it was for me, especially because I haven't been to church in quite a while and, um, and seeing that you didn't either and that you've come back to it and maybe having the courage to, to go the way that I think is right and um, and find a community again. So, thank you. When I, I just want to say, like, people who, um, you ha- in spite of everything, press on, and, and maybe t- after taking a break or reevaluating or, or, you know, taking time away, still want to be part of the church, even after they've been turned away from churches, even when their family and friends have... Uh, question their faith. People, like, that just, it really inspires and encourages me. I'm usually, I'm, like, ready to storm out the door when the pastor says something, like, minorly theologically not exactly what I think. Uh, And when that happens, I think about all the people who, in spite of great odds and all sorts of resistance, still want to be part of the family of the church, and I'm like, I keep my ass in the pew, you know? Like, uh, it's, so thanks for the encouraging word, and right back at you. Uh, we're totally in this together, uh, one step at a time. Thanks, like everybody else. Um, and my question's a little bit, so I'm half of a queer partnership. Um, my partner is not Christian and not planning to be any time, um, but is willing to come with me, which is awesome. Um, we've been trying a couple places. We're looking for this sort of progressive middle that you talk about. Yeah. I was raised evangelical. This was a real life for me for a long time. Um, but one of the things we're consistently finding is that progressive tends, when we do rarely find it, to correlate really specifically with certain class lines, with yeah. certain race lines, yeah. and with certain levels of education yeah. that don't necessarily welcome a whole lot of people. Right. Um, also, you have to get dressed up for reasons beyond my understanding. Like, the more liberal the church, the more dressed up you have to get. I don't get that. Very real. Very real. And so, and that's been a really tricky space for us. Yeah. I was wondering if you have thoughts towards that. And yeah. also thoughts, I mean, yeah, thoughts towards that would be awesome. Yeah, so. that, I really appreciate the comment. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that is a challenge. I'm from East Tennessee, and so and we go to an Episcopal church in East Tennessee. You're from East Tennessee? Whereabouts? I grew up in Carnes. In where? <laughs> in Carnes, right oh, outside Knoxville. you're kidding. Oh, Real my life. gosh. Chattanooga area here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. So you know how very, very white it is in East Tennessee. Uh, and so our church is, is pale. Uh, <laughs> And, and that is when we were talking about what we wanted in a church and looking, like, that was not something we wanted. And that was the big compromise we made. 
Because, I mean, you're going to have to make a compromise at some point. I will say what I'm seeing in the Episcopal Church, and just today I was speaking at a UCC church, super, super progressive, and the, um, the new leader of that congregation, I don't know what they call him, not a bishop or whatever, they call him something else. Um, but the dude, he did this video, like, introducing himself to the people at this UCC church, and he was talking about his background, and he has a doctorate in white privilege. Like, who knew that was even a thing? <laughs> I was like, leave it to the UCC for that one. Um, but but uh, so he talked about the importance of, you know, having better conversations about race and doing like I've seen just in the past couple of years, a lot of the leadership seem to have a lot of mainline Protestant denominations realize that they have a problem with this. And then the Episcopal Church, which, you know, when you're talking about class and race, it's like a big deal. Um, and, but I'm seeing from the top some conversations about really making efforts to change that. So I'm optimistic about that. And I think in a place like this, you might have a better shot at finding such a congregation than I'm ever going to have in East Tennessee. Um, that said, I, I would be lying if I said that like finding a faith community, you're always going to have to make some kind of sacrifice. It's never, the makeup of the community is never going to be exactly what you had hoped for. Um, But, you know, you can be part of the change in some cases, or sometimes it just means accepting that that's how it is. And finding other ministries, other groups to sort of uh, tickle that itch uh, and, and to be part of a community that's not just all the same can help kind of supplement it. But it's, you know, it's something that I think about almost every single Sunday, Um, but it's not something that I can change about my community, and so sometimes you just have to to find the one that that you're willing to compromise with, and, you know, but maybe here you'll have better luck. Uh, It's a a much better pool to draw from, but uh, I appreciate that that's important to you, and I really genuinely do see in some of these mainline churches a real effort to make some changes, so we'll see how that goes, but it seems to be becoming more of a priority, so we'll see. Hey, we go way back to like hey, an hour. like yeah. to what, six, six o'clock? Yeah. yeah so, um, my name is Karis, you know that, but um, so my wife and I were talking, we got married in October, and we have a... Yeah. <laughs> We have a, a, a big section of our family came, and they're very involved in the Catholic Church. And one of the things that we keep hearing is, we support you, but, or the, uh, I think the, the phrase that we use in the evangelical church is, uh, we love the sinner, but, oh, but hate, hate the, sin. the oh, sin. Oh, that should be just stricken from the right? record for right? all of time. It should just be, we love, and then just kind of no drop from more. there. But yeah. um, how do you... How do you? How would you speak to that? Because I know there's a lot of mm. us who've grown up in the evangelical church that mm. that is our family or our church traditions way of saying we're not really sure what mm-hmm. to do with you. So. Yeah. Oh gosh, it's so tough, and I've been fortunate not to have to have that because um, I'm straight, man. It, it, there, there are some perks uh, to that. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I've not had that experience exactly. I mean, I've had, you know, experiences where people have questioned my faith or like, well, we love you, but we don't really think you're going to heaven. You're going to burn in hell forever. And it's like, well, thanks for your concern. Um, 
But even in those moments, when I'm feeling full of the Spirit of the Lord, I remember (laughs) that this is their clumsy way of loving me in spite of the fact that they have, like, some pretty major objections to how I view the world and how I see things. Um, And there are people in your life who you're willing to make that compromise with, Um, you know, close friends and and very close family, I think. Uh, You can kind of live with it. And then there's other people who, for the sake of your own health and uh, your own sense of identity as a beloved child of God, you just have to move away from them until they accept you fully as who you are. But everybody sort of has a different experience with that. Um, do you read Jeff Chu much? Okay, he, he wrote, Does Jesus Really Love Me? It's a book about, um, he grew up evangelical in a, a Korean church and what it was like coming out. Uh, in that situation, and uh, he and he also gave an amazing talk at the Gay Christian Network conference this last one that was about his relationship with his parents uh, in the midst of this. And um, they didn't go to his wedding, but he has an amazing relationship with them in spite of that. Um, I would just recommend reading everything that guy has ever written um, and listening to that GCN talk. Just Google Jeff Chu Gay Christian Network, and you'll hear it because I think it would probably be more meaningful coming from him than from me because he's been so much in the trenches of that um but and he has some great practical ideas for managing those relationships but um yeah i would i would look to to jeff on that and um and his guidance because it really kind of depends each situation is different and every person is different and i you know with the love the sinner hate the sin the conversations i used to have i'll be honest here with evangelicals was well you know we're all sinners so why are you and i'm just done even having that conversation like your sexual orientation is not a sin it's not something you have to apologize for it's not something that makes you dirty or wrong or should make and i just i'm done having that conversation even about i'm so in some ways i'm tired of LGBT people always being compared to the sinners that Jesus ate with. You know what I mean? Like, does that not get old to y'all for sometimes? Like, well, well least, you know, Jesus ate with sinners, so I might as well eat a taco with a gay person. Like, it's like, it's so condescending, right? Is it? Okay, okay. Uh, so I kind of just, like, quit doing that. Like, because we're, I mean, the, I mean, the truth is, of course, we are all sinners. Like, right. Jesus hung out with sinners because that's all there was to hang out with. Right. So... Like, Jesus hanging out with sinners is like Jesus hanging out with you, you know? Like not Or us going to church with white people. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of what, you know, where I'm at in those conversations. So if somebody say, does love the sin or hate the sin, I'm just like... Nah. I always say if I'm going to hell, at least I'll have friends there. So. Mark Twain always said yeah. you go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company, so... <laughs> Hi, so um, my name's Kevin. Um, I've grown up in actually this city all my life. And I guess I'm in kind of a little pickle here. So I'm Korean, I'm Pentecostal, and I'm evangelical. So you know the, all the implications yeah. there. Um, I'm actually leading a church plant in La Crescenta, like So it's just right there. Yeah. Um, and we're actually funded by a conservative Korean church. Right. Um, and also I work with a high school in this area, and they're pretty conservative in terms of the Christian clubs, you know, Mm -hmm. 
all of that. Um, things have been changing a little bit, but not really. Yeah. Um, and my whole thing was, oh, you know, I believe that you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, but people have divergent viewpoints. You know, I respect that, all of that. Um, and that was, that was very comfortable for me, that kind of yeah. spot. But um, I've been praying, I've been studying, um, and literally last Saturday, I'm like, all right, I changed my position. I think God's actually cool with same-sex marriage. Wow. Yeah. Um, but the problem well, is now... Well, being the kind of person who can change, yeah. like, no matter what. Like, that's I'm 20-some... I'm, I'm 23. I can, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't... I don't know shit, like... <laughs> who knows? I might change back. <laughs> but, um... Basically, um, yeah, so we're, I'm kind of in this place where my leaders are actually cool with where, where I am. Yeah. And they're like, all right, like, if this kills our church, I'm willing to die with you kind of thing, um, even though they don't necessarily fully agree with me or anything. Yeah. But I'm kind of at this place where I'm just like, okay, how open do I go with all my views? Because mm. um, my, you know, I, I was kind of like kind of where you are in terms of, you know, really conservative just groups of people that you just hang out with, so it's, yeah, I'm kind of like, maybe maybe you can give me some insight, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say, like, as for as long as you are welcome in that community and doing the great work that you're clearly doing uh, in that community and, like, try to stay a part of it, like, um, you know, I mean, as for as long as you can speak and be in relationship with, you know, the more conservative side of, you know, folks, the better. Um, because, I mean, sometimes some of us just get to a point where we're sort of, like, not allowed anymore. Uh, and it's harder to speak to that audience and to that group and to be in relationship with those folks when you've been uh, so... I think one thing is, like, sometimes we can... I am this way. I can get so focused on my point of disagreement that that's what I become about, you know, like, hey, I'm here to play the devil's advocate all of the time. I'm here to be the opposition. I'm here to, like, disagree with everyone. I'm the, you know, it, it's part of what makes me unique and cool is that, you know, I'm the heretic. I'm the, but, but we can go so way too far with that and miss so many opportunities for, I mean, I'm thinking about, you said you worked with high school students or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think of how important your presence among them is. Like, that is such an important time for thinking about sexuality and working yeah. through all those issues, to have somebody like you as a point person so, uh, is so important. I guess my question is, um, so even tomorrow we're actually going to our umbrella church and we're going to share, Just we're mo- actually moving facilities because of some stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's like, do I immediately talk about that or should I just stay silent for like a couple of years and then? Or like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Because we're gonna, we might lose our funding and everything, you know, like that oh, other church. Yeah. <laughs> and I just scared you to death with that story, like, and I romanticized it, like death and resurrection, and you're like, oh shit, this is real, <laughs> real for me. Um, gosh, you know what? I, I don't know if I can answer that question for you because only you are really gonna know when to say what you want to say and when the right time is. And I think that really takes a lot of like spiritual practices and prayer to center yourself well enough to know when you're speaking off cuff or out of anger or in reaction and when you're speaking out of conviction. Uh, When I first changed my mind, uh, I missed an opportunity. Our church that I was at at the time put a bunch of signs in the front yard that was like vote yes on Prop 1, which was like um, banning 
same-sex marriage in Tennessee, which of course doesn't matter anymore. And uh, <laughs> uh, and I was really ups- I, I did I was really upset by that. But rather than talking to people about it and kind of taking a stand, I just kind of shrunk back and stopped going to church and never had any conversations about it. And I regret that. Not that I should have made a scene necessarily, but I could have been, I could have said, you know what, those signs in the churchyard don't represent how I feel about this, Um, you know, and talk to a pastor about it. Or So I look back and I think that might have been a missed opportunity and it was because I was really scared of the fallout and I was really scared of um, what that would mean to the relationship. So I guess what I'm trying to say is if you act out of love and not fear, I think you're going to be okay. Um, and, but only you know when it's the right time to speak up. And I, I'm like, not to get all evangelical on everybody, but <laughs> I really do believe that the Spirit can lead us into the right opportunities and that if we're qui- we know how to quiet ourselves before we speak, if we're quiet enough to hear the Spirit, we'll recognize the Spirit's voice when it's a nudge to go ahead and speak. So only you know the answer to that. I hope that you can stay a part of this ministry, especially since you're working with high school students. To have a compassionate person there would be just great. But only you know the right way ahead on that. I, I also go to Biola University. I don't know if you Oh, yeah, Biola. <laughs> Dude, you are in the thick of it, man. Like, uh, man. <laughs> let's all be in prayer for him over the next few weeks. But... Uh, yeah, Thank I'm you. so glad you are, though. <laughs> hey. And, hey, you stop us when we need to be done. I don't know who's checking time. But... Oh, I'll wait. You, you do whatever you want to do. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, like, after this, the last person in line should probably be the last. I mean, just for the sake of people who need to go to the Jennifer Knapp concert. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Hi, my name is Jalen Levingston. I am a college student, and I moved to Los Angeles from Louisiana. And I found that I was in a church community that I was raised in, I didn't have a choice about, and was very comfortable in it. And once I moved to L.A., what I found out a lot like my other friends was all these words like love and compassion and empathy and communion and they had actually just become hallmark words because we were just raised with that Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of my friends haven't left the church in the way that we speak about it like like tonight but they just left it because they literally had to go to school right and so when they are dealing with Mm -hmm. um how do i like deconstruct love and empathy and compassion and how jesus lived Mm -hmm. outside of a my, my typical framework, which was mm. my, my family unit, my tribe back home, mm. how can we find the church again, especially if we might not ever return to that specific place? Right, yeah. right. So you mean like kind of folks who don't leave because they've had this big traumatic experience. It's more like they, they leave went to they school. To. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's like, I think most of the folks we lose, lose, if you will, that's their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually part of the problem uh, is that in some churches, they talk a lot about compassion and empathy and social justice, and, and that's great. Um, but I once talked to a, a girl who had left a, a more liberal mainline Protestant denomination, and she was like, well, I mean, you know, they talked a lot about social justice and creation care in my church, and, you know, we talk about that in school too, so what was the point of going to church? Mm-hmm. 
And that's where I think it's so important to us to, for us to reclaim what is distinctly Christian about our tradition. Uh, and to talk about these ancient practices and uh, the history of the church and to Im- embed among us and within us a sense of belonging to something bigger than ourselves that isn't just about having certain beliefs or, you know, having compassion. You know, like these words that we tend to throw around with, that aren't really fleshed out. I mean, they're fleshed out in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's like, you know, churches that don't, like what I was saying before, that social justice without Jesus and Jesus without social justice basically make the church unnecessary. I think that happens to a lot of people. If your church is just just talking about social justice, just talking about being loving and being compassionate, but not really talking about and wrestling with w- what that looked like in the person of Jesus Christ, I mean, it's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it thing. It's not that important to our lives. And we've got so many other things competing for our allegiance and our attention, especially when you're in your 20s and 30s. Uh, so I think we're losing a lot of people to just the fact that we haven't talked about Christianity in a way that is uniquely Christian and centered on Christ. Um, if we're just talking about love and peace and joy, I mean, you can kind of get that elsewhere. Uh, but again, like, church is the only place somebody will put ashes on your forehead and tell you you're going to die. Like, that is unique. Uh, to the church. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, yeah, that but that's kind of what I'm thinking. And, cool. you know, it's, it is true that a lot of times people leave church for a while in their 20s and come back when they have a family because, you know, that's how we've kind of set our churches up. Or um, So there's some people we just lose because of life happening, and I don't think that's like a big deal to be super freaked out about. But I think we would lose less of them if uh, we made that distinction that, like, we are a uniquely Christian community. So sometimes that makes certain people mad, but I, I feel like it's kind of important. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, <laughs> um, I am born and raised youth group kid. I definitely drank a Happy Meal at one point. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the worst. Um, I recently became a deacon in my church. Um, I'm 26, so I don't know if I'm allowed to still learn things or not. But um, I just I wanted to ask you about creating spaces to doubt, because um, partially with feeling like I have additional responsibility now and feeling like I was moved into this, partially because I have so much background and I have such a wonderful family and like I have good people to talk to, you know, and I feel that like I love that community, but. Um, especially with the internet. Like, there's so many times when I feel like, okay, I can't say anything because it's going to be, like, extreme position, extreme position, and, like, I should just never say oh, anything. no, Facebook is the best place to have, you know, deep conversations about politics. I recommend writing a post about abortion right now and just watching the thoughtful thread that they see. Yeah, so yeah, so for the most part lately I've just held back because I just don't know what to do and I don't know how to express that I don't know things without coming across as I don't know anything, I'm starting over because there are still things that I'm holding on to but I feel like unless I'm either yeah, thumbs upping everything anyone posts like they might not talk to me, you know? And I, yeah, I'm trying to figure out the right way to be like I'm trying to get more out of my also evangelical friend zone to like learn more from people but it's hard to do that without coming across as like, be my token gay friend, you know, because like I've gone through that phase, but I'm not there anymore. And I don't know how to express that well. So 
Well, and, and really, the internet's not always the best place to do it. I mean, I think the internet's a great place to listen. Um, not the best place. This is somebody who makes her a living writing on the internet. Uh, That's why I asked. Not necessarily the best place to speak. So it's like, I mean, I have almost always regretted when it's people I know in real life jumping onto their Facebook page and correcting them on whatever ridiculous thing they have shared. Um, because... Like, that's sending the signal that our political or theological difference are more important than our relationships. When it's just people on the Internet that I don't really know, I mean, I think that's maybe a bit safer. So I would say, like, the Internet's not the best place to have the conversations with your real-life friends um, because it tends to, to take out all of the body language and all of the, all that, that background and relationship that makes those important conversations valuable and actually useful. Um, <clears throat> as far as, like... When to be honest and to share about your doubts and and in your questions, like as a leader, I think it's super important that you do that. Um, you know, I think the role of of Christian leadership in this age is not so much to uh, uh, to, to, to sort of run the show or to offer corrections or to uh, to do any of that. It's more to kind of just go first, to be the first person to be honest about your own questions and your own doubts because it's amazing I think of myself my job as a writer I think is to go first uh, to be like okay well I'll say this thing about how children's choirs creep me out sometimes maybe I'm not the only one and sure enough there's a whole bunch of people who have had that same experience and I can look at when I'm honest with people about what I'm struggling with I can look at their faces and see them relax because it's shocking how many people are having the exact same questions going through the same doubts, the same inner struggle, and just to know that they're not alone is such a relief. Um, and if you do it in such a way that it's like you're just really honest about your own questions and you're not trying to push an agenda of any kind, and you say, I'm not trying to push an agenda of any kind, but hey, some days I wake up and I don't know if I believe in this resurrection stuff. Maybe we're just afraid of death and we invented a very nice story around it. That's a scary thing to say, but, like, there will be people who are like, oh, my gosh, me too. <laughs> I have that same thought. Uh, and um, it's so freeing. And if you, as a leader, set that tone in a faith community, then it becomes a safe community for people. Um, you know, Kathy Escobar, I don't know if you all are familiar with her church, The Refuge in Denver, uh, and she's partnered with somebody else in this church. And they modeled their church around... Um, the Beatitudes and the 12 Steps of AA. Uh, and their motto is that the refuge is a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Uh, because they've brought in so many different people have kind of come to this church because it's such a, a place where people can be really honest about their struggles and their sins and their doubts. And that brings together a real odd group of people. And sometimes it's uncomfortable, um, but everyone is safe. Uh, so I think you know, you going first and volunteering that first, I think, can make a big difference. Um, but like I was telling someone else, you know, only you know the right moment to speak up and the right moment to be quiet, and you're going to make mistakes. I make that mistake all of the time. Um, but if the people closest to you and the people who you're ministering to know without a doubt that your relationship with them is more important than your theological or political differences, then you have a little bit of margin for error. You can make some mistakes together. It'll get uncomfortable, but if that's the baseline, like, you're going to be okay, I think. Thanks. Hi, Rachel. Hey. I'm, I'm Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Um, so I grew up in a PCUSA church, um, very, like, in western Colorado, and so 
Uh, it was very intellectual, but at the same time... You Presbyterians and your big words and your, yeah. I'm a student at Fuller Seminary as well, so, yeah. you know, I'm in the midst of yeah. all that. You knew what paracoesis was, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, I haven't heard that for a little while. I just started in spring, but... <laughs> so, um, one of the things that I sort of find myself in the midst of is a lot of theological debates and discussions, and so... Um, One of the things I found really interesting about this, though, and these experiences is that um, oftentimes it can become more about the theological nuance rather than the relationship. And so I guess my question would be, how do you engage in conversation and dialogue with people who are very intellectual and care a lot about this deep, deep stuff while also being able to, like, care for them as a person. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, that's a great, and you're like so in the middle of that, and it's like such a great time in life where you get to do that, like you get to stay up till four in the morning talking about perichoesis and debating like predestination and free will and theodicy and like stuff that like later you realize just doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> that's that's what I'm feeling right now. Like I'm I mean, but to... it's fun and it's yeah. it, and it's and and in the midst of that stretching though, you're asking yourself, what kind of God do we worship? Yeah. Uh, what is Jesus like? So those are important questions. Um, but like at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to who are you serving? Who are you loving? Who are you know? What does this look like in the flesh? And, and, I mean, I always say, like, if it doesn't make sense among the least of these to whom Jesus first brought the gospel, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times you'll bring up, you know, people who are transgender or people who are, um, y- you know, like, who just for whatever reason don't fit the mold. Single people, you know, and yeah. hoping to find the church. and Or poor people or, you know, people who don't have the kind of income to have this sort of life that we hold up as the model for Christian living, like, I always find myself asking the the theology types who are hashing all of this out, like, if it doesn't make sense to the outliers, it doesn't make sense. Like, it's not enough to say, well, they're outliers. They don't really count. We have to go with the ideal and build our theology around ideals. Like, so the question I always come back to in the midst of theological discussion is, what would this look like in a homeless shelter? Does it make sense there? And if it doesn't make sense there, it doesn't make sense. It's not good theology. Um, And the same can be said for your relationships with all of these guys and girls that you're having these conversations with. When I get in heated debates with people and I start to think of them as just their theology and I get really mad, Um, usually these are people on Twitter, I I try to imagine them wrestling around on the floor with their kids uh, because it reminds me that like a lot, these are dads, these are sons, these are brothers, these are... I'm talking about all guys here because that's who I'm usually debating theology with on Twitter. Um, uh, and to keep that in mind, and if you set that, like if you make that a priority, not everybody else is gonna. Some people are gonna make it all about the theological debate and who wins the debate, and you know. But if you bring it back to uh, the relationship, then I mean, I think you're doing the right thing. Food also helps, like theology should be discussed around food because like hopefully then it gets into not just the theology but also relationship stuff yeah. and life stuff and but the question I mean I, I, I used to really love like the, the mental exercise of it and I still kind of do I can still oh, yeah. get into it but if it doesn't make sense in flesh in day-to-day life like I don't know not, so I think going yeah. back to that question I don't know or just have fun with doing this right now like yeah. 
yeah. It's like a time in your life where you get to sit around and smoke pipes and have your big fancy <laughs> thick books and like, yeah. it's fun and it, and it is important because it will yeah. shape how you interact in the real world. But uh, yeah, so I mean, just I would say have fun with it. Thank you. Hi, Rachel. I'm a Hi. fellow Tennessean. Yay! Where are you from? Nashville. Nashville. Yeah, that's a good place. Um, Sweet. Yeah, and then a fellow lover of Krista Tippett as well. What's I think that? Krista Tippett on being. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. I think we have a mutual obsession with Krista I love her. I yeah. really think she would like me. I think, like, I right? Think about right? This right? Like, yeah. I follow I her on Twitter. I think we would get along. Yeah, I'm like, should I respond to that? Maybe, maybe she'll know we'll be best friends if I say this right. to Krista. I yeah. love that we have a shared pursuit of making Krista Tippett our best friend. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, I'll get there before you. <laughs> I'm going to be in Minneapolis true. next week. That's where oh. she lives. Oh, wait, I don't know where she lives. I, that sounded really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, I, I think I could be creepier than you. Right. So, um, so, okay, so I grew up Christian, um, read my way through a lot of stuff, read my way to seminary out here. Nice. Um, started with Thomas Merton and then Krista Tippett and speaking of faith. And uh, the past couple years, I have really been excited and energized by Thich Nhat Hanh, which then led me to Pema Chodron and all these Buddhist yeah. people who I love. And along the way, I also had that same experience of like feeling like other people were saying the liturgy for me because I didn't actually believe it. Right, yeah. And so at some point, I'm feeling like in this middle space where, where emotionally and historically, mm-hmm. I have this Christian background that I don't want to leave because it's, such, it's formed me in some of the same yeah. ways. sounds like it's formed you. But on the other hand, I don't know how to integrate all this other stuff that is so much more compelling to me yeah. than what I see in evangelical circles yeah. around me and publicly. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, um, you know, Brian McLaren's book, uh, I can never remember the title of this one, it's like, why did Jesus, Muhammad, and Moses cross the road, or why did Moses and, that was a titling error, I think, but um, it's, it's his book on, like, interfaith dialogue and interfaith experiences, and I really highly recommend his thoughts on this very exact thing because he talks about being very open to other points of view incorporating like mindfulness and all the great stuff from like and i read living buddha living christ and i was like yes this is really compelling and helpful and uh uh, and he talks about doing all of you can do all of that while still maintaining a strong christian identity that you don't have to sort of sacrifice one for the other it's not about choosing um so, I mean, I would recommend his work on that because I think that he writes about it in the most compelling way that I can think of. Uh, and I don't think, like, I mean, who was it that was like, well, I'm 23, so, I mean, I, I'm going to change my mind about stuff. Uh, you know, we're young, and uh, I think once you decide that there's nothing to be afraid of in looking at other traditions and studying other traditions, the freedom to do that and to take what uh, seems spirit-filled about those traditions and leaving other parts of it behind. Like, this notion of, well, we can't have cafeteria Christianity. or ca- That's BS to me. Of course we can. We all do anyway. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. uh, especially in this culture and in yeah. this age, like, it's inevitable that we're going to sample other ways of thinking and other points of view and find some of them really compelling. Like, yeah. why would we go into conversation with other people of other faiths without being open to learning something and maybe even taking something away, maybe even changing our minds. It's so unfair to go into a conversation thinking that 
I'm here to bring the light to this person. Uh, and they're not here to bring any light to me. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's been my experience of kind of like dabbling and studying and, and reading and opening my mind to other points of view. And yet, personally, I feel like there's something important uh, about staying centered in my Christian tradition uh, because of the gift that it has given me. And I, it was the tradition that I was raised in, and I see a real value in that. Um, and I don't want to just cast it all away because, like, something else on the surface maybe seems more appealing. Because as much as we might study and learn, it's still we're, it's a surface understanding of other traditions and other faiths. And it's sort of like, you know how it is, like, you take off in one place and then you kind of end up coming right back around to seeing that, oh, this is stuff that's also taught in Christianity, or, you know, or it helps you just see your Christianity in a different light. So, I mean, I'm just kind of like, there's nothing to fear. Explore away. But for me personally, staying grounded in Christianity has kept me rooted in, you know, my my roots. It's not something I can just change about my background, so I'm not really going to try to. I'm going to try and embrace it. You can never leave Chubby Bunny. What's that? You can never leave Chubby Bunny Chubby Bunny, Bunny will always yeah. be with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, good luck with Krista. Okay. I hope that okay. yeah. that goes yeah. well. It's, it's a race. I'll take it as a contest. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last one. And I'll stick around afterwards so we can chat and everything. All right. I feel less pressure to have like a great last question. Um, <laughs> but I uh, grew up in a very traditional Mormon family, and I'm still Mormon. Um, but being a progressive Mormon is a very yeah. lonely and sometimes unsafe person to be. Um, Anyway, I found your book, Searching for Sunday, through some of my cool Christian friends, and I read it, and it was, I just, every page I turned, I just was so amazed at how connected I felt to your story. It was like, finally, someone who understands, and it was surprising. Um, But my question for you is, um, you know, through my, like, 15-year faith crisis that's gone through every subject and like you, you said don't look old enough to have had a 15 year faith right? crisis though, oh, thank let me you. just say <laughs> um i've gone through every emotion from you know confusion to sadness to anger and i find myself at this point settling into cynicism and i hate it and i'm wondering if you have any um suggestion on how to get out of this that cynical place to be because on some part, I, I, you know, it doesn't hurt quite so much when I'm cynical. Right. That's <laughs> the whole point of cynicism. It numbs you, right? Like, to the pain of it. Yeah. Oh, uh, honey, I spend so much time in that exact place, like, of, like, just sinking into cynicism. Because um, it's just kind of my natural default. And the reason we do that is because it, like you just said, like, it, it takes the pain away momentarily. Like, I think of cynicism as an anesthetic. It, like, it numbs us to being hurt. But the problem is you can't selectively numb yourself. So if you shut down the part of yourself that can be disappointed by your church and by your tradition and by your family and by your friends, you're shutting down the same part of yourself that's moved to compassion that feels love and joy and connectedness with other people. And so when I get there, which is often, uh, I just have to remind myself, like, Rachel, you don't get to opt out of feeling. Like, you have, like, I don't want to live the kind of life where I've, in an effort to protect myself against being disappointed, uh, I've built this wall of cynicism around me, which means we have to just be courageous enough to be hurt 
and courageous enough to be disappointed. And it sucks. Uh, but something that helps me is to have certain spiritual practices, uh, certain prayers or readings or whatever it is that both grounds you and opens your heart. Uh, those are really, really important. And it's one of those things that's easy to let go of when I'm feeling cynical and discouraged or when I'm just really busy. I don't want to pray. I don't want to work through this prayer from you know, Julian of Norwich or whoever I have chosen to be my spirit person. Uh, but it's so important to do that because it's just, I just don't want to live the kind of life that um, in an effort to protect myself from being disappointed, I become cynical. Uh, so it's sort of like you have to sort of work up the bravery. And of course, I have to talk about Brene Brown. Uh, but really, everything Brene Brown has ever written is really helpful in this regard because she talks about living as an open-hearted person. And that means being vulnerable all of the time. And that is so hard, but it is so worth it. Like, it's just no other way to live. Um, it's, there's, it's not an option for me to live in a way that is not open and tender-hearted. So a mantra that I often give myself is thick skin, tender heart, because um, it reminds me that, like, yeah, Rachel, if you're going to do what you do, like, right on the Internet about theology, like, people are going to criticize you. And, uh, and if you're in a conservative tradition uh, trying to be you as a woman in that tradition, and I know that's got some really unique challenges, like you're going to have to get thick skin. You know, you're going to have to uh, be strong. But you have to keep a tender heart, too. And, and that Dan was the one who first encouraged me on this. Um, quick story, and then I'm done. Uh, I'd had a bad day on the Internet. Some Calvinists were being mean to me. And <laughs> so many of my days begin, well, there was a Calvinist, who said. Um, and I was just like, I got, yeah, I was kind of giving myself this pep talk, and I was like, these guys are all bad news. You know, if, if I'm going to make it in this boys club of an industry of Christian publishing, I'm going to have to toughen up. I can't let anything get to me. I was like giving me myself this self-talk, you know. And I'll never forget, Dan turned to me and he said, oh, Rachel, I'm so proud of you. You're such a strong woman uh, and you, you've grown such thick skin over the years. But please, whatever you do, don't ever lose your sweet and tender heart. Because that's part, one of the reasons I fell in love with you, and that's part of what makes you Rachel. And of course, then I was just like, <laughs> like the waterworks, crying. But that mantra has never left me. Thick skin, tender heart. You gotta grow a thick skin. But please, whatever you do, don't lose that tender heart that can be hurt, but that can also be moved to compassion and um, can be sensitive to the spirit. It's just, it's not a way to live. So, but honey, I get you. I'm there so often. I spend a lot of my time in that space of cynicism. Um, but I'm determined to claw my way out of it every time. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Right. Wow, you've been on stage speaking and standing for two hours almost. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And um, everybody, thank you for being here. Um, please stay, hang out, have some drinks, have some food. And I just wanted to let you know that um, this is a Christian community that embraces doubt and unknowing and embraces the LGBT community. You are welcome here. You are loved. Thank you for being here tonight. Go in peace. <laughs>